Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. And welcome back to the Patrick Henningsen Show with me, Basil Valentine. In for Patrick today, Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2024. I'm delighted to say I'm joined by fellow TNT host and former Liberal Democrat Member of Parliament, Lembit Opik, for a deep dive into the awful state of the UK political scene, where it seems uh, people right up to and including the Prime Minister make things up as they go along to suit their own political agenda. Last week, we had some of the most disgraceful scenes in living memory in the House of Commons when the Scottish National Party ceasefire motion was not put to the vote. And after consulting with Israeli President Isaac Herzog, uh, Keir Starmer went and strong-armed, although I don't think he really had to use much coercion at all, uh, he got Lindsay Hoyle to adopt the Labour amendment instead, uh, breaking all protocol and established procedure. Subsequent to that, things got even more bizarre with Hoyle changing his story to claim that the reason why he hadn't put the SNP motion to the vote was fear over MP safety. There was a a large but entirely peaceful demonstration outside the House of Commons of people calling for an end to the genocide. Uh, Yet somehow uh, these people were twisted into an Islamic mob, a potentially violent Islamic mob. Uh, Absolutely scandalous, the degree of misrepresentation. And there are pictures all over social media of the crowd outside. Ordinary, peace-loving, particularly quiet people. But that hasn't stopped Rishi Sunak, the man masquerading as Prime Minister, to vow that the UK will not bend to the threat of violence. There is no threat of violence, Rishi. The violence is coming from you. And says the Gaza folk fast sends a dangerous signal that intimidation works. Lembit, I mean, I do hope you agree with me that we've ended up in a very, very, very strange place where peaceful protesters calling for Uh, an end to genocide are portrayed as intimidating politicians. This is absolutely off the chart stuff. With a heavy heart, I do agree with you, Basil. There are three really depressing things about British politics last week. And for those insomniacs who are listening around the world, let me make my three points in a very simple way. First of all, the Speaker of the House is like the chairman, and he's meant to be completely unbalanced in terms of his politics, i.e. walking away from his affiliations, stepping down from that platform and operating as if he's not in a political party at all. Unfortunately, Lindsay Hoyle looked like he was doing the bidding of his leader in the Labour Party, who admitted he'd went to see Lindsay Hoyle to talk about changing the agenda. That's a very bad look. Secondly, When Lindsay Hoyle promised the Scottish National Party, which is the third biggest party in Parliament, actually, uh, that he'd made a mistake and he would put it right by giving them uh, an emergency debate of some sort, people believed him. But then he went back on his word on that. 
and he hasn't given them the debate. And the third one, as you said, was his claim that he did all of this to protect politicians, and he made this impassioned speech that he didn't want to get a phone call to find out where one of his colleagues had been killed. Leaving aside the copycat dangers of saying that, in other words, giving people the idea of doing it, almost as if this is something that could happen, could be countenanced as happening again in Britain, even though it's obviously would be murder or, or grievous bodily harm. The worst thing about this, Basil, is he's using the fear of intimidation as a justification for dropping his impartiality. Now, he's tried to back off from this again. I know Lindsay Hoyle quite well. He was an MP when I was, but it was a very serious mistake. Would he lose his seat about it? We'll probably talk about that in a minute. Well, over 80 members of parliament have now signed a motion of no confidence there. Uh, that's about mm, something like 12, 13, 14% of parliament. That's a problem because that means he's lost their respect. Yes, I mean, that number should really prove fatal. Um, you know, it's a significant chunk of the House of Commons and and the Speaker is really required to enjoy the confidence of everyone, bar perhaps one or two disaffected individuals um, who he hasn't called to speak or, or have some personal vendetta, you know, really out of the 650 MPs. Uh, he needs the support of at least 645 uh, to be able to continue in his job. 80 is too many. But these days, of course, people don't care about that. They, they what they call tough it out. You know, in other words, they basically uh, no longer behave in the ways that uh, senior politicians are supposed to behave. Um, just as worrying is the prime minister who spoke apparently of his worry over an emerging pattern, you know, total garbage, which has seen legitimate protests hijacked by extremists to promote and glorify terrorism. This is an entirely evidence-free assertion, 100% evidence-free. Um, you know, uh, and at the heart of it, of course, because Charlotte Church, the Welsh singer, has been uh, attacked for um, a pro-Palestine fundraising concert, you know, trying to raise money for people being systematically starved to death, um, is this phrase from the river to the sea, uh, which is deliberately misinterpreted to mean the genocide of the Israeli people, when in fact, my understanding of it uh, is that it is simply demanding equal rights for everybody living between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean. First of all, Sunak, uh, do you think he's deliberately uh, twisting events for his own political gain? I mean, this whole thing turned into, um, you know, Islamophobia, uh, ridiculous claims from Suella Braverman, the former Home Secretary, that Britain is now run by Islamists or something. I mean, it's all got absolutely hysterical and, you know, frankly, bonkers, Lembit. What I think is happening, Basil, is the complete breakdown of any coherent dialogue about the big philosophical issues which require yes. information and maturity. We've seen all this yes. with the climate uh, emergency scam, which can be destroyed in about two minutes by anybody who understands the basic science. And now we're seeing it with this ludicrous attempt to try to appease uh, uh, the Islamic community, 
and then to appease the Zionist community, then mix up Zionism with the religion, which happens to be called Judaism. What I think is happening here, Basil, is we're seeing two terribly depressing things going on in Parliament. The first one is that people like Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, I don't think they're trying to twist things. I think they're twisting in the wind, trying like weather vanes to point into the prevailing wind of criticism that they get. So they say to the uh, Muslim community, oh, we're not against you. Yes, we think there's a problem. Then they turn to the Zionist community saying, oh, well, obviously we don't want you to be persecuted or in danger as well. The, so the first thing is we've got this pragmatic political class, which is not really got a, a core mission except to stay in power. And the second problem is a complete failure to understand the difference between religion and politics. It seems that they're scared to say Benjamin Netanyahu is making dreadful and fatal mistakes, certainly in terms of the Muslim community, the, the Palestinian community, just because they think if they criticize Netanyahu, they're anti-Semitic. Just because Netanyahu happens to be Jewish doesn't mean he's he's completely above criticism, but they don't understand that. Oh. And now we see the Labour Party, and this is Keir Starmer's crowning glory at the moment, not just annoying uh, the Jewish community uh, by some of the things that he said, uh, which made him look like he was, uh, or his, his party made him look like he was uh, anti-Israel. Uh, then he went on to criticise there's a Muslim community. And then we saw the anti-Semitic comments by some of the, well, allegedly anti-Semitic comments by some of the people in the Labour Party when it was Starmer himself who made a rod for his own back by criticising Corbyn for the same thing. But what needs to happen here is a great big cooling off and understanding that religion isn't the same as politics and that you can criticise people from any religion without being against that religion. But as you said yourself, we are so far away from that. It confuses the public. And what Starmer has certainly done in the Rochdale by-election, which we might talk about in a minute, which is an upcoming by-election in Thursday here, is annoy the Muslim community and the Jewish community at the same time. Now, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Starmer hasn't really achieved an awful lot in his time as Labour leader, it's worth remembering that at the recent Wellingborough by-election, which he was claiming as a great victory, only because the Conservative vote completely disintegrated, the Labour candidate got 5,000 fewer votes than he did in 2019, <laughs> and three quarters of the electorate said they couldn't stand either party. In fact, yeah. the uh, the winning candidate was elected by, I think, one in seven of the adult electorate, or one in eight, something like that, a really derisory number that tells me we've got uh, a, a real democracy deficit. We've got a real crisis of legitimacy with politics in this country. And part of it, as you touched upon there, stems from the, from the fact that there are no core uh, beliefs, morals, standards, ethics uh, amongst any of the parties. You know, it's very difficult to say that a party uh, promotes, for example, a concept as basic as peace. It's very difficult for a party to say that they support the creation of a fairer society and the redistribution of wealth or individual liberties. These core sort of enlightenment principles uh, upon which our social democratic society was built in the 20th century, which now starts to look like a sort of, you know, although we complained about it at the time, but now starts to look like a a shining example of uh, decency and morality. Uh, politics has now become 
completely detached from any meaningful value system, as you say, uh, and is motivated solely by power politics and 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 personal ambition and ego, and uh, you know uh, whatever you think will enable you to to get on, not just within your party, but also not upset the Americans, Brussels, uh, the Israelis, or wh whoever, wherever else you think power lies. And this is extremely dangerous and extremely damaging because basically the whole lot of them are totally unprincipled, Lambert. The reason that today's news talk is gaining so much ground, I think, Basil, is precisely because we can have these discussions and we can have people who have a contrarian view. We don't cancel people on the basis of the fact they have a different opinion. Uh, as you know, on Saturdays, uh, I'm on from 10 a.m. till 1 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time and Sundays, 9 a.m. till midday Greenwich Mean Time. And the tone of my programmes is roughly similar to this one because we dig deep into viewpoints from people who can't get an airing in other places. Sometimes we have people right. who the viewers don't really agree with. But that's because you've got the right to express your views, even if it doesn't fit the zeitgeist. And sometimes it's right to have people who have completely different views, perhaps even authoritarian views. So at least we can triangulate our opinions. But the core point you're making here, Basil, is something which makes me very depressed as well. Uh, we now have this uh, uni party consisting of conservatives, Labour, and I would say the Liberal Democrats, the three old big players who don't really separate themselves in terms of the core issues. To see Keir Starmer oppose the idea of a ceasefire in Gaza was breathtaking. That's when he lost the Muslim vote, I think. And then to uh, preside over a party which is behaving as far as the media is concerned in the same way that the Labour Party behaved under Corbyn, which Keir Starmer and his cabal particularly criticised, that just makes them seem totally incredible. Meanwhile, I've got a Conservative Party which is tearing itself apart, uh, for example, uh, on account of controversial comments made by a chap called Lee Anderson, who's a uh, Conservative MP who's in trouble at the moment for having said something allegedly offensive, uh, instead of saying, let's have the debate. Lee Anderson uh, has said these things. Let's see why he says it. Instead of all that, we've now got a party in government which is tearing itself apart and looking like it's its own opposition. What should be happening, in my opinion, is simple. To uh, hear somebody like Lee Anderson, and I don't know if we're going to go into the details on that, uh, say something which which may have been provocative, talking about the influence of the Muslim or the Islamist community on the mayor of London. You say, show us the evidence. Come and show us the evidence. Have the dialogue and let the viewer decide. But we don't do that anymore. Instead, we live in a cancel culture, which is now infected like mold, the very bread of British politics. And that's perhaps why we've got so many problems and why Britain seems to be imploding in terms of its self-confidence. Yes, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We've got this terrible narrowing of the acceptable opinion corridor you know, to the point where it's effectively a straitjacket. And if you step off the reservation, even one millimetre, uh, you just get shot at. It's as simple as that. Rather than, you know, attempting to sort of understand why somebody says something to uh, uh, about a particular subject. I mean, immigration is one uh, typical subject where, uh, you know, perfectly legitimate concerns people have are immediately attacked or dismissed, you know. Um, the you know the standard of debate 
is the lowest in living memory. We're going to take a short break now when we come back. We're going to have a look at the Rochdale by-election where George Galloway, the maverick former Labour MP who famously impersonated a pussycat on Celebrity Big Brother, looks set to be returned to Parliament. We'll be right back after these messages. TNT's Tyler Nixon. I think uh, with the people behind her, the never Trumpers and the money flowing in, whatever their end game is, it doesn't seem that she'll be dropping out even if she loses her her own state, which kind of gives you a sense of the arrogance of power of people who back uh, the Nikki Haley's of the world where the popular uh, support, popular consent doesn't really doesn't really mean anything to them. They're going to they're going to continue forward uh, seeking that power putting themselves in the mix, regardless of uh, how many spankings or smackdowns they get from uh, from the uh, citizens, you know, from the electorate, uh, who are obviously minor, you know, just a sort of a speed bump in the, in the uh, path in the quest for uh, power. Tyler Nixon on today's News Talk, TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. The benefits of advertising on today's news talk, TNT Radio, should be clear to businesses of any shape or size. It can be accessed anywhere, anytime, by anybody, and is the perfect way to build brand awareness and stimulate digital activity. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. Without CO2, the world stops breathing. CO2 sustains all life on Earth. Government, the WEF, and the elite believe humans are the carbon they really want to be rid of. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Well, the British media are doing their best to cause all kinds of problems here in Rochdale, but the problem for them is there are no problems in the campaign. Rochdale as a town has deep-seated problems. I'm already trying to grip with some of them, but the idea that this campaign has been in some way turbulent or uh, divisive, it's them that are being divisive. They cannot accept, for example, that for thousands of people in Rochdale, the genocide going on in Gaza is a matter of some importance. Why should that be divisive? Uh, I'd argue if you're not concerned with what's happening in Gaza, then your soul is already gone. And of course, it would be uh, foolish to think that you could fight an election only about a foreign policy issue uh, thousands of miles away. And we are not doing that and have never done that. I've spent the day uh, talking to people about Rochdale Football Club, for example, uh, which is as far from an international issue as you could uh, imagine. I've been in lots of elections. I've actually never been in a more peaceful election than this one taking place in Rochdale. And that's mainly because Labour are not here. Labour are out of this election, withdrawn their candidate, and therefore all the normal uh, circus that Labour bring to politics in urban areas is completely absent. So actually it has been a very good campaign. I think the result will be quite a decisive one and I hope that I'll be representing Rochdale for at least five years to come. That was George Galloway, former Labour MP, who will be 
most likely the next MP for Rochdale, standing on behalf of the Workers' Party of GB. Now, I don't expect to draw you on the Workers' Party itself, uh, Lembit, but uh, personally, I think it's very refreshing to see somebody uh, standing, you know, effectively as an independent and standing on the issues, uh, whether the genocide in Gaza or restoring the maternity unit at Rochdale Hospital. Uh, George has certainly struck a nerve. Um, it's to be hoped, I think, that uh, we see more independence and, uh, you know, mavericks like that standing at the next general election because the current crop of MPs are without doubt the worst in my lifetime. The Workers' uh, Party is not a party that I subscribe to, but I respect them as one of the inevitable consequences of the gentle and miserable deflation of principle in the Labour Party. And well what said. You see, I was quite pleased with that. I'll probably use it again. <laughs> I'm not surprised. It was really in, very eloquent. But live in the live global audience as well, Basil. You heard it first right here on today's news talk, uh, TNT. Now I agree with you. The odds, uh, in terms of uh, those who take bets, also agree with you. Uh, George Galloway is likely to win. I know George very well. I've got a lot of respect for him because I was talking to some of his activists where you and I met during the week, actually, outside the Royal Courts of Justice when today's news talk gave pretty much the only honest English language coverage of the outrageous attempt to extradite uh, Julian Assange. And I, the Workers' Party was there and they were explaining George Galloway's position. And I agree. He is actually likely to be the voice of Rochdale's a guy called uh, Simon Danzuk, who is a former uh, Labour MP also. He's standing for the Reform UK party. And it seems to me they're the two most credible people in this campaign. Why? Because he stands his ground. He stands his principle. I'd much rather have a principled politician with whom I'm not completely philosophically aligned rather than somebody who doesn't have a philosophy. Uh, it's difficult for me, of course, because I like working with George on, on television and on radio. Maybe would be too busy to do it. But I think he's going to win. And when he does win, it explains partly why the Labour Party shut down its campaign, because they probably thought they were going to lose to him anyway. This is a classic example of where Keir Starmer is beginning to lose credibility. Now, last thing I'll say just now, because I'm interested to know what you think about it, too, is this. Uh, Labour Party is in a very much weaker position than people realise. Starmer, the more he is in the public eye, the weaker he looks. Sunak is a nice but middling manager. And there's nobody else in terms of the other main old parties in town. So you get Reform UK with some pretty charismatic people. And you've got people like George Galloway, who, when presented to the public, they go, actually, we want people like this in Parliament, even regardless of whether he's left or right. He's a human being. Yes, exactly. I, I saw somebody talking about George saying, well, you know, he can talk about football and culture and all sorts of other things other than politics. He's actually a, a rounded human being, whereas uh, most politicians these days come out of uh, seemingly some sort of, uh, per, you know, personality free factory um, <laughs> uh, where, you know, they're, they're sort of not allowed to present any other side of themselves other than you know that which toes uh, increasingly difficult to understand party lines 
party lines that, as we said, are sort of totally divorced from any underlying principle, uh, which is one of the worst things. Um, do you think there's, uh, you know, a lot of people really would like to see a political, myself included, a political earthquake in Britain. But unfortunately, we're saddled with the two past the, you know, first person, post two party system. And another of Clegg's failures, of course, was uh, when he was in a position to influence uh, a referendum on on proportional representation. All he got was that miserable single transferable vote, wasn't it? That was what was put to the electorate. I mean, that was <laughs> that was another singularly disastrous episode, wasn't it? You know, um, I'm sure like me, you believe in uh, PR uh, for all its faults. Uh, you know, you get parties like Podemos coming up in Spain. Um, you know, genuine grassroots activism turned into political representation in Parliament. That's virtually impossible in the UK, other than at by-elections like this, where smaller parties get the chance to concentrate all their resources in one place. Um, and uh, people are not browbeaten by corporate media to quite the same extent as they are at a general election. So, you know, a political earthquake, I'd love to see it. You know, are we going to get it ever? Second point first, Basil, I actually work on a campaign called Operation Earthquake. This evening in about 90 minutes, uh -huh. I'll be in it. That uh, project is very specifically about stopping the insane attempt to ban the purchase of new petrol and diesel engine vehicles in the United Kingdom. One of the stupidest policies I've ever seen, Basil. Uh, they want us to have electric vehicles. Well, they're actually, in my view, worse for the environment than petrol and diesel vehicles. And we haven't got the electricity infrastructure anyway. So what we would say to politicians through Operation Earthquake is, if you support the banning of choice, the banning of my right to buy a new petrol or diesel vehicle, then we're going to get rid of you because you're our servant and you don't represent us. On the first right. point... I feel that, and it ties into what you've said very much, Basil. Uh, I feel that what we're seeing now is a fragmentation in British politics where there's a huge frustration, a huge disappointment with the old legacy parties that walk hand in hand with the legacy media because they support each other. And that's why George Galloway's party affiliation is less important than his charisma and the specific things yes. he says. The clip that you played, I think it's really, really poignant. He's a likable man. And people fear him because they can't beat him. And the second thing is that Reform UK, which is Simon Danzig's party, is really interesting. I, I gave one of my days of coverage uh, on today's news talk on Saturday morning on the Lempotopic show to them uh, because I wanted them to be able to put out their position. And we had some great speakers. Uh, Alan Cook, who's a candidate. Uh, Rupert, though, who was actually a by-election candidate in uh, one of the two by-elections recently. And then Anne Widdicombe, who uh, British viewers will know very well as one of the very charismatic people who's also got a celebrity profile. And all of them spoke from the same hymn sheet. They spoke from the same messaging, but not because they've been given it, it's because they feel it. Uh, I don't think that the Reform UK party will form the next uh, government of the country, but they could define the next government of the country because they're going to take two-thirds of the or three-quarters of their vote from the Conservatives as things stand and perhaps a quarter from mm. Labour. They could get as much as 20%. Why? Because people are completely disillusioned. It's one reason, it's a sort of a double-edged sword, this, Basil, but it's one reason that today's news talk is doing so well because people can tell that we say the facts 
and then we express our opinions, but we don't mix up the two. I think George Galloway will win the elect by election on Thursday, but that's not a fact yet. Others will say it's a fact that X or Y or Z happens. And what we've now got is a political system which has completely confused facts and fiction and opinion in a way which just makes people not trust any of it. Yes, very well said. Even The Guardian is getting on board. Marina Hyde writing today, look at the political hellscape of Sunak, Anderson, even Starmer, and ask, are they making my life any better? To which I would add, do they even want to make your life any better? Uh, in, Su in Sunak's case, um, sorry, in Starmer's case, he faces a very serious challenge at the next election from uh, Andrew Feinstein in Hoban and St Pancras. The, I mean, he's, <laughs> Feinstein is a real cat amongst the pigeons because, of course, uh, we all know how the corporate media love to portray uh, any form of pro-Palestine activism as somehow anti-Semitic. Uh, this comes straight out of Tel Aviv, this narrative, and was responsible for the political assassination of Jeremy Corbyn. But Andrew Feinstein has a secret weapon against that. He's Jewish. So it's very difficult. Uh, you know, the standard line is that he's a self-hating Jew or something. But it's quite obvious he doesn't hate himself. Um, he's, in fact, extremely eloquent uh, and a former member of the South African Parliament, where he represented the ANC and uh, was a close political ally of the late Nelson Mandela. So Feinstein's political credentials are impeccable, and he's standing with the support of an organization called Oryx, O-R-I-C-S, who are uh, an umbrella group supporting uh, independent left-wing candidates who are going to stand against sitting Labour MPs who voted for genocide. Now, this is a completely new phenomenon in British politics. There are going to be uh, left-wing candidates standing against the sitting Labour MPs in Liverpool uh, because, uh, you know, the Liverpool Labour Party was sort of traditionally very left-wing. I mean, I can remember the days of, of uh, Derek Hatton and Millicent Tendency up in Liverpool. And Liverpool's always been one of the sort of hotbeds of the most radical politics in Britain, uh, yet they had these uh, centrist Blairite MPs foisted upon them. Uh, so left-wingers independently are going to stand against them. Uh, and I'm delighted to say as well, the man dubbed hilariously by Alexei Sale as Keir Starmer's love child made of margarine. I'm talking, of course, about the uh, awful Wes Streeting. And I, I can't get that image out of my head every time I see him now, because he does rather look like he's made of margarine. Um, so uh, he's being challenged uh, in his constituency. So uh, in terms of the wider political earthquake, I think it may consist of uh, very sizable tremors, sufficiently high on the Richter scale to cause implosions dotted around the country. In other words, I mean, if Starmer loses his seat, Streeting loses his seat, uh, you know, then the, the, even if Labour is the largest party, this crisis of legitimacy comes ever more into focus because, mm. you know, who does the king call to form uh, the the next government if the leader of the uh, 
largest party has been unseated. You know, we could be in for some kind of constitutional crisis. And to be perfectly honest, I hope so. I doubt that will happen for the following reason. People often talk about conspiracies, and I believe there are some. I think the way that the uh, green crisis scam has been perpetrated is definitely a conspiracy, stoked up partly by the World Economic Forum. I think that the COVID scandal is another one. But on the level of British politics, to be blunt, the parties are far too incompetent to do it. Uh, what's happening here is an immature and underexperienced political class from across the parties that's coalesced into a single homogenous grouping. And they're now frightened and they look gormlessly out from Parliament to people like George Galloway and the Reform Party and uh, individuals such as uh, Nigel Farage. And they don't really understand why these people are popular. So instead, right. add fuel to the fire by running them down. What I think about your direct point is this. There will be upsets. I suspect that Labour will get the most seats, but they might not get an overall majority. At the moment, it's more likely that they will. But it doesn't really matter because they're going to do such a bad job anyway. And it's going to be so similar to what the Conservatives were doing that the public will turn even more against them. I know from insider knowledge that the Reform UK party is absolutely hell-bent on uh, destroying the Conservatives for now. And the reason they want to do that is because they're useless at the moment. And that point, they can say, now let's reassess what this country really needs. I'm excited by the potential for some change here. I'm not standing for the Reform UK party or anything, but at the moment, they seem to be the most informed and the most rebellious voice against the Blamange uni party that's cursing the United Kingdom. Yeah, they got 10% of the vote in the uh, two recent by-elections. And I mean, that's a big chunk. That's enough to unseat well, at least 100 Conservative MPs on its own. Um, you know, Sunak's support is absolutely cratering. Last question, though, Lembit, before we take a break, and I can't thank you enough uh, for a thoroughly enjoyable conversation, I must say. Um, My pleasure. Last question. The Conservative Party is the most successful political organisation in the history of the Western world. It's got a dreadful habit of winning elections. It doesn't like losing. Uh, if Sunak looks like he's going to lead the party to an election or meltdown, which has often been predicted but rarely come to pass, uh, the only exception really being 1997, uh, do you think the Tories might ditch him and even bring back the dreaded Boris Johnson in order to bolster their prospects? I don't think so. If they did ditch him and replace him with Boris Johnson, there'd be civil war within the Conservative Parliamentary Party, but more support out there because the public don't make the same kind of calculations that the chattering classes in Westminster do. You only have to see Trump's enduring popularity to know that. What I do think will happen is that Sunak will lead his party into the next general election. Theoretically, the minimum seats they'll get is 42. I would say it's between 99 and 165. At that point, the Labour Party, as things stand, uh, will become the, the largest one and will form a government. And then they'll completely ruin the country. They'll, they'll do a terrible job until in 2029 they get chucked out. They might not even make it so far. Let me summarise it in this way. If things were leading to a general election this Thursday, then Starmer would probably win. 
But the longer Starmer is in the public eye, the worse he performs. We already know middle manager Rishi Sunak. He's the devil we know. The Starmer situation is one of considerable disappointment as we go further. So my prediction for the long term is the Labour majority and a restructuring of the Conservative Reform UK. They're not really the right wing, but those those interest groups. And my prediction for the short term is a George Galloway win on Thursday. And if I'm wrong, I'll come back onto your show after Thursday and say I'm sorry. Uh, I have a small financial interest in a Galloway <laughs> win. I missed the big price. I missed the 18 to 1 first offer, but uh, I've got, uh, uh, well, I'm in the best part of £100 or something coming my way if Galloway becomes the next MP for Rochdale. Well, as regards the Starmer situation, yes, the longer he's in the public eye, the worse it gets for him. Uh, a lot of traditional Labour voters are on the left. Uh, are, are not interested in him at all. In fact, if he gets elected, it's going to be by uh, what one now calls low information people. <laughs> if you know what I mean, people who don't really pay any attention to what's going on uh, and, and have simply had enough of the Conservatives. Lembit Opic, I can't thank you enough for joining us today okay. on the Patrick Henningsen Show. Just remind our viewers and listeners where they can find you. We'll be talking about this very subject, the outcome of this very important by-election, uh, on Saturday between 10.00 and 1.00 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, uh, and on Sunday, 0.900 till midday, Greenwich Mean Time again. Uh, I'm on every weekend, but always happy to help my, my fellow travellers on today's news talk and share my opinions as well as the facts as I see them. been a real pleasure to spend time with you today. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Lembit. There he goes. And uh, I might find myself on that programme before terribly long. <laughs> We're going to take a short break with the network, network now. And when we come back, I'll be joined by writer and economics cryptocurrency expert Blake Lovewell for the final segment. Don't go away. We'll be right back. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. There's an old Southern proverb here in the United States that the ones doing the accusing are usually the ones doing the doing. The bard put it a little more eloquently, methinks thou doth protest too much. But pretty much any time you see people smearing Donald Trump, for example, you can pretty much bet your bottom dollar that they're the ones that are guilty from everything of which they accuse him. Starting war, being a dictator on day one, all of the lies heaped upon Donald Trump, all the fear-mongering, all the panic they're trying to engender. We're, we have to save democracy. How exactly? By destroying democracy, by being totalitarian, by breaching civil rights? No. I'm sticking with Granny on the front porch. Those doing the accusing are usually those doing the doing. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea. For today's news talk, TNT. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's news talk radio, TNT. And welcome back to the Patrick Henningsen Show with me, Basil Valentine. In for Patrick today, Tuesday, the 27th of February, 2024 and i'm delighted to say i'm joined by journalist and cryptocurrency expert in fact soon to be crowned financial guru 
Blake Lovewell. Welcome to the programme, Blake. Hello, um, Basil, uh, in for Patrick. Good to see you. Uh, you're doing a great job there. Um, Guru might be stretching a bit far, but um, I think I've got what it what it takes. Uh, whether I'd want to be one is a different question, but to be a guru, I think you just need to make predictions. Uh, whether or not they come true doesn't matter as you speed away in a limousine with dollar bills flying out of the window uh, from the followers that you have. But, uh, you know, we're lighthearted. And I'm not seeking to give anyone in investment advice. Uh, but as you can see by the neon sign behind me, um, I've definitely got certain interests uh, which uh, I hope to spread, you know. Well, uh, I noticed that, uh, and it, it, it's extremely impressive looking. And you've certainly got the beard of a guru, so a, a combination of the, uh, the the Bitcoin symbol, which I was advised to buy uh, once again a few weeks ago by a friend, and I'm told it's doubled since then in value. Uh, uh, is that I don't I don't follow it, but I believe Bitcoin's mm. gone up a long way recently and is set to go up further and uh, yes. there's a general sort of cryptocurrency explosion going on at the moment uh, yeah. does that look set to continue why don't we start there yes yeah, so it, uh, bitcoin's price in dollar terms has doubled in the last year so if that person had told you about a year ago when it was in the uh Twenty-seven thousand uh, dollar per Bitcoin mark. Now, since then, it's doubled. Um, today, it's at uh, the fifty-seven thousand dollar per Bitcoin mark. But at the start of this week, I was watching the price go up from fifty thousand. So, fifty to fifty-seven thousand is a massive um, leap. Yeah. Um, it, and 14%. so, if you're speculating, yeah, exactly, fourteen percent. And if you're speculating on the price increasing or holding it as an investment asset that's good but you know if you'd bought it many years ago you'd have seen the peak at uh, 68 69000 dollars we're still down from the all time high uh, there so if you bought at that peak you'd actually still be uh, working at a loss so i mean uh, that's if you're measuring the value in terms of dollar um uh like a dollar price then that's uh it's a good week for you for sure um that price rise can be quite easily tied to um ETS um exchange traded funds these are stock market um assets that have recently been given the green light by the SEC the Securities Exchange Commission in the US um straight on the stock market and what they represent is a kind of paper um version of bitcoin you can trade on the stock market um as a as purely as a speculative asset however if you want if a company if one of these financial um uh vampires i'll call them uh if they want to host a uh, bitcoin etf they have to hold uh the correspondent amount of the fundamental base layer asset being bitcoin which means that as people are more and more interested in buying and exposing themselves to the to the dollar price of Bitcoin, uh, these ETF companies like iBit uh, will have to be um, buying the Bitcoin to back that uh, as a kind of reserve. Um, and that means there's been a lot of buying pressure on the market, um, you know, to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in the last month. Um, and furthermore, um, statistics I read today were that 80% of the uh, Bitcoin held in wallets hasn't moved in the last six months, um, which kind of tells you a lot 
about the nature of people holding it as an investment. Uh, you've got lots of what people call hodlers or holders uh, who hold on for the long term, hoping to see not just a 14% uh, increase, but 140, 1400% increases over uh, longer and longer time spans. Um, something similar might, you could liken it to gold bugs, but um, I would say it's a lot more of a jumpy market. It can jump up and fall down. Um, uh, with crypto because it, it's not as tied to the physical world. It is tied to the physical world. People say it's not backed by anything. Well, it's actually backed by, um, you know, terahertz of uh, hashing power, people investing money in the energy to mine Bitcoin. Um, and uh, the computing power uh, is not something to be sniffed at because, the, you know, the it's the equivalent power of small nations being used to mine crypto. Um, but before we go into but, too but to, nebulous well, of a conversation, no, no not at all. In. I mean, uh, I, you know, okay, so huge amounts of energy are required to mine these Bitcoins. I get that. And that mm. costs money. But why yeah. does that mean the product is necessarily intrinsically worth anything? Yes. And um, also do uh, viewers and listeners do feel free to shout questions in the chat because I'll try and address them because I often see uh, naysayers uh, and I'm not trying to shield anything. Um, but do shout uh, these questions because, uh, you know, we hope to expand your understanding, um, give some real good information. So um, uh, Basil's question there was about the intrinsic value. Um, there's a there's a few um, threads to the rope of the intrinsic value of Bitcoin that um, someone who um, would who supports Bitcoin would say um, those being one is scarcity. It has a finite uh, amount that can never be created. That amount is 21 million. Um, so if you want to calculate the value of that, you know, uh, you can just divide uh, whatever amount people want to invest by 21 million. Um, if so, that's 21 so, million sorry, dollars, can I just, it's $1. Can I just, can, can, can I just uh, hold it there? So so when Bitcoin was set up, it was yes. decided by whoever set it up yes. that there would only ever be a total of 21 million Bitcoins yeah. mined by this blockchain ever. technology ever. Uh, exactly. Of course, people are, still, people are still mining them now. So yeah. how many are there in existence now? Are we halfway there or? Three no, no, away. we're well past halfway. We're at 18.5, 18.6 million mined with right. the right. the races, the races on for the final two and a half million. Uh, um, and, right. and, uh, and after that, it simply becomes a tradable commodity. There's no, there can never well, be, it can never be added to, you know. Well, I mean, it's because of the, uh, just, go on. Yeah, because of the um, the way it's set up, we can kind of predict, uh, you know, one block is mined every 10 minutes. Currently, the block reward is um, 6.5 Bitcoin. That's set to uh, halve in the next couple of months, which is another big story coming up, the halvening, but we'll park that one. Um, but we can predict that the final Bitcoin will be mined in the year 2140. So in about 120 years, the final Bitcoin will be mined. And then we come to the crunch point for the Bitcoin network, um, how is it going to work from then on? Um, there's, you know, a possibility that the transaction fees will allow, um, you know, miners uh, mine for the reward, but they also mine for the transaction fees, just like like how Visa, um, PayPal, or any other middleman, financial middleman, they make all their money on uh, transaction fees. Um, such would be the same. Uh, 
economic impetus for Bitcoin. So um, that's kind of looking forward a century for Bitcoin when the final Bitcoins are mined. But yeah, the, the simple argument is that there's a scarce number, a finite number, which equals scarcity. Similarly, the value proposition for gold is there's a, um, a known quantity of gold in the uh, circulation and there's a known quantity in the Earth's crust. You know, here or there, people can hedge uh, whether there's more or less in the Earth's crust. But um, and that can be mined at a certain rate. So it's a similar argument there. Um, on terms of scarcity, but obviously we could use anything, uh, baseball cards, uh, Pokemon cards, those are also scarce, only a certain number were created. Um, whatever rare asset you want could be used in, in a similar fashion for scarcity. Uh, what Bitcoin's uh, got unique propositions um, in terms of transactability, that value can be sent across the world instantaneously, or actually it's not that efficient. Um, you know, we could come to the downsides of Bitcoin because we don't want this to just be another uh, podcast shift. Uh, Bitcoin and all the up, sunny uplands um, because the transactions actually do take about 10 minutes on Bitcoin's um, network, uh, which isn't very efficient. If you're trying to buy a coffee at a shop, the coffee will be cold by the time the transaction is confirmed. And it's not just coffee, um, lots of different um, um, transactions require instant near instantaneous, um, you know, confirmation so uh, that the transaction can go ahead. Uh, if you're waiting at the checkout at a supermarket for ten minutes, people are going to be uh, quite peeved. Um, so uh, that's one down for Bitcoin as economic uh, electronic cash is um, that the transactions do not take place quickly. People propose various technical solutions, but on the base layer, fundamentally, that's going to be a problem um, because you can't edit the code of Bitcoin without, um, you know, changing the fundamental um, proposition of the of the currency of the asset or whatever and there's a lot of people invested in how the structure of the asset is now if you change that um, then you have a contest like when there's a fork um, there was a fork to bitcoin cash uh, fork to bitcoin satoshi vision these alternatives proposed um, a version of bitcoin which allows much quicker transactions much more transactions per second um, however they aren't as widely supported as uh, btc which is the main bitcoin that we're talking about today you know the $57,000 a coin um, one. Um, and I do think coin is quite a spurious term uh, for what it is, but it's a very simple way to uh, assess and understand the economic rationale. Another downfall potentially is, is as you mentioned, uh, the creator, Satoshi Nakamoto, remains anonymous. Um, lots of people like to nowadays speculate that uh, it was uh, created by the NSA, CIA, FBI, um, um, I hedge my bets on that one. Some people like to think that Craig Wright um, is the creator, but I'm not so sure on that one. But there's a various number of candidates uh, who had the technical prowess as well as the um, informational awareness who also fit the description from uh, Satoshi's anonymous posts online. Um, so um, as of now, he hasn't been unmasked or they, if it was a group, haven't been unmasked. But I think it I personally hold it as a bit of a problem for the long term of Bitcoin um, if this anonymous creator remains hidden. Uh 
or if they are revealed because the the first wallet uh, that was mining bitcoin holds over a million bitcoins uh, which at today's value is to the tunes of millions and millions uh, and if this person suddenly started moving these kind of um sacred dusty relic bitcoins um it would it would shake the whole uh, thing up again but as i say everybody who's uh, involved in trading bitcoin on these prices they know these pitfalls and yet that it's still valued at $57,000 per bitcoin um not that you have to buy a whole bitcoin fyi you can buy one single satoshi which is about a millionth of a bitcoin so you know you can still get into bitcoin if that's what you're interested in uh, very easily um but yeah um th those are a couple of pitfalls to mention too because i don't want to come across one-sided um i'll just uh, see if any questions have come up that are of interest or, or if you do uh, feel free to shout uh well uh what's its relationship with the real world economy uh and mm -hmm. what's the total value of all the bitcoins that have been mined to date mm -hmm. and uh is it essentially a saving system a gambling forum um well a, a you can use exchange it. or all of the above yeah all of the above and more um you know, Bitcoin is a supercomputer made up of computers around the world grinding away. And, you know, things like contracts are easier on other coins. You know, Ethereum's big selling point is that it's good for smart contracts, but you could do those on Bitcoin and you can do those with other cryptos. Um, there's there's so many different uh, aspects to it. Uh, its relationship to the real world, as I said, it's based in the cost of the energy used to mine uh, Bitcoin. But the um, the I think that the emerging use case is as a reserve asset, somewhat like U.S. Treasuries are used to back uh, various different things, uh, investments and so on. Uh, U.S. Treasuries being the uh, Treasury issued uh, bond uh, with a yield of various different time lengths. Those those T bills, as they're known, U.S. Treasury bills become the fundamental base layer for uh, backing any global currency or trade arrangement and so on. Um, Looking forward, people, um, you know, big financial uh, people like JP Morgan, all of these people are involved in the ETFs in Bitcoin. And what that kind of points to is that they uh, have gone from, you know, poo pooing the whole idea, you know, still Jamie Dimon at Davos this year was uh, going, oh, Bitcoin, when will people stop talking to me about Bitcoin? Well, his company, JP Morgan, uh, is investing billions with the uh, other hand. So, you know, I don't think he's the most honest person you can trust, the uh, boss of JP Morgan. Um, but if we're looking at um, through that lens, it can be a reserve asset used by all of these different um, financial vampire companies uh, as the base layer of value, a digital version of gold, um, if you will. Um, this is me speculating, um, but it's a lot easier to use something like Bitcoin than it is to use gold to back your assets. And they're already moving in large positions to 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 make that one of the large use cases. So it's kind of a settlement layer. Um, and in that way, I think it could segue with uh, the kind of CBDC system that's coming down down the road um, because Bitcoin is already fully digital. Um, you know, it, to make it physical is very difficult and convoluted. Um, so it's, it's pretty much all digital, fully digital. Um, 
um, you know, it, to make it physical is very difficult and convoluted. Um, so it's it's pretty much all digital. It's a it's a ledger that exists over time. It records every transaction, every uh, wallet that's used to transact when it took place to a very precise uh, time. Um, it so it's already got all of the markings of a surveillance uh, system, if it were so uh, wished to be. So you know, the future um, right now is looking bright for Bitcoin, but I still think there are massive questions to be asked too. Um, so we we shouldn't get lost either one way. Um, you know, the bull way thinking it's it's the everything asset that will eat up the whole global economy or the the bear case where it's just numbers that aren't backed by anything um so you know in in that sense uh, the, the 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 market's uh true price i think is fair and the jury's still out uh, as to whether it will exist forever well i can't thank you enough blake and i'm uh, none the wiser <laughs> <laughs> well we'll do this again sometime we're out of time. See you all same time tomorrow. I'm Basil Valentine. Have a great day.